Thanks for joining us today. We'd love to hear how God is using this ministry in your life. We encourage you to share your story with us at info at fellowshipgj.com. Also, if God is using this ministry to impact you, we want to encourage you to partner with us financially. You can do that online at fellowshipgj.com. Pick the giving option that works best for you and help us to continue to bring the message of Christ to our community and beyond. Again, thanks for joining us and enjoy today's message. Well, they met in the eighth grade. He was new to the school. She'd been there, going there all along. And they were sitting in one of those boring school assemblies. And he glanced down the row and he saw her and they made eye contact. And he thought, I've got to find a way to meet that girl. And so he did what any modern teenager would do. He checked her out on Instagram and he found out what does she like? What does she dislike? Who are her friends? And after he had sufficiently gotten her a little bit pegged, he decided he was going to plot with his friends and that they were going to strategically sit in the cafeteria near the table where her friends sit, but not directly at the table. And so this plot was kind of unfolding for several weeks until finally one day by accident, he stood up with his lunch tray. At the same time, she stood up with his lunch tray and they awkwardly ran into each other. And he took the opportunity to introduce himself. She thought his name sounded cute. So he went to her basketball game, and then she said, well, I might as well go watch him wrestle. And it went back and forth like this, getting to know one another, and their friends kept helping, you know, trying to make up reasons to get the couple talking. She always liked his Snapchats. And when she had her tonsils taken out over spring break, he texted her to make sure that she was okay, and the rest was pretty much history. Their first dance together was the Bon Voyage dance on the very last day of eighth grade. It was pretty lame. Broad daylight in the school cafeteria, but somehow it sparked something. And all summer long, they text back and forth. And a few times, they even hung out in person. The memories kept building from there. Freshman homecoming dance, his dad's heart attack, the two of them studying together in his hospital room, while dad recovered, running track together in the spring, summer jobs at Bananas, the fall production at school sophomore year, weathering her parents' divorce, the state track finals in Denver, his adorable promposal. Both of them began taking classes at WCCC their senior year, and they both applied to several colleges all around the state. Their freshman year, they studied separately, her in Fort Collins and him here in Grand Junction. But they just missed each other too much. When he finally proposed, it was picture perfect. He took her to a grove of aspen trees up in the mountains at fall. And the leaves on all the trees were turning colors and it was beautiful and vivid. He'd set up a few buddies a couple weeks ahead. And they kind of like hacked apart a trail. And then the day of, the buddies went and they lined the trail with those little LED candles. And then they hung these pictures, her on the right and him on the left, from newborn all the way through to present day. And when they got out of the car, she took his hand and they began walking that path. And he told her all the things that he loved about her. Who she was, how she loved God, her character, her beauty, her intelligence. He was just going on and on. And when they finally reached the end of the trail, he got down on one knee and he asked her to marry him. And she said yes. 
And the wedding planning was quickly in full swing. They decided not to have too long of an engagement. They decided an outdoor wedding in the summer in the mountains in a field. They kind of planned that all the guests would sit in white folding chairs and, and the field would just be sprinkled with wildflowers. And the groom and his father would make an archway out of wood and trees and they'd stand underneath that. It was going to be perfect and then the reception was going to be a feast around the lake like with like a catered meal and it was going to be magical. And the day came and it went just as they had imagined. It was stunning and it was perfect exactly how they expected. And that is why the groom was so stunned when she never returned. Sometimes she'd take his phone calls. Every once in a while, she'd respond to his texts. A couple times, they, they both were ended up at the same social gathering with their mutual friends, and he'd see her through the crowd, and he'd try to push through to catch up with her, but she'd disappear. He wrote her passionate love letters and, and sent them to any address he thought might catch up with her. But most were just returned to him, unopened, stamped, returned to sender. When he finally got her face to face a couple months later at a Starbucks, he asked her, what happened? Why did you leave? And her response was shocking. You asked me to marry you. I did that. What more do you want? He was stunned. I wanted a life together. I wanted to grow old together. I wanted to be that couple walking down the country lane in our 70s, holding hands. I like, I wanted, I didn't just want a wedding. I wanted a life. And friends, this thing that we're in, this relationship that we're in with God is very similar. God isn't just after a wedding. He doesn't just want a, a one-time commitment from you and from I. He wants the whole thing. He wants the marriage. He wants the ongoing day-in, day-out connection between us and him. He wants us to be in it for the long haul, for the rest of our lives until death do us part. It's Supposed to be a relationship that shapes every other relationship we have on this planet. It's supposed to be a commitment that, that like trumps every other commitment that we could ever make. It's a grow old together, fall in love more every day, forsake all others, and choose each other fresh and anew again each morning. The title of this morning's message is The Runaway Bride. And Isaiah 54 lets us know what our relationship with our creator is designed to be. It says, for your creator will be your husband. The Lord of heaven's armies is his name. He is your redeemer, the holy one of Israel, the God of all the earth. It's really trendy in our culture, in our day and age, to have this idea of like, it's going to be awesome in heaven. And we all want to go there. And like everyone, you ask a man on the street, they, they want to go to heaven. Everyone wants to go to heaven. It's very cool. The alternative is not cool at all. And so everybody wants to go to heaven and spend eternity with God. And yet we're so hesitant as a culture to spend any time with God now here on earth. And walking out our faith 
And this relationship, this marriage relationship we have between ourselves and God isn't only Disneyland vacation kind of moments. It's not only the good, happy, lighthearted moments. It's also the day in, day out moments. The finding joy in the regular life and embracing that somehow in with God. Things like, I'm going to pray while I cook for my family. I'm going to bring God into the, the mundane of cooking and make it spiritual. It's the worship music while you fold the laundry kind of moments. It's the podcast on your phone while you drive to work so you can learn more and more about God and his word as the day unfolds. It's in connecting with God throughout the entire day that's going to make the relationship work. Sometimes I get the opportunity to sit with a starry-eyed teenager in love. And it is a sight to behold, isn't it? They're, They're like in love And they have this image in their minds, and they think it's going to be very easy to be in love forever, and that it's going to be simple, and and they envision things like long romantic dinners that magically get paid for, and gazing into one another's eyes in perfect harmony, and that happily ever afters come easy. And when I have these kind of conversations, these moments with teenagers, I just want to hug their little selves and say good luck with that. Because (laughs) you don't want to burst their bubble, but as an adult, you have a keen awareness that there's two sides to marriage. There's the Disneyland romantic moments, and then there's the down-to-earth, day-in, day-out sort of moments. Marriage is also work. It's doing life with another person. It's partnering together, constantly communicating re-clarifying because you didn't communicate well. It's beautiful. It's this child we made together and we can't help but stare at their cuteness and everything they do is awesome and we don't even need cable because we just watch our child run around being adorable. But then at three in the morning, the child pukes and it's, you strip the bed, I'm bathing the baby, we got work to do. It's both And it's Disneyland and it's nitty-gritty all at the same time. It's the, we don't have time for the long romantic dinner. It's soccer night. I made you PB&J. Hope you like it. Get in the minivan. We're almost late. I mean, this is what marriage really is, right? And our relationship with God, and our relationship with God is both ands. It's both and the intense, beautiful, romantic, good feelings kind of moments, and it's the nitty-gritty of doing life together. Sometimes it's the goosebumps in the Christmas Eve service, or that feeling you get when the worship band plays your most favorite song, and you're just in the moment worshiping God. But sometimes it's the messy prayers of a broken heart just clinging to God because In spite of how it looks, you have to have faith it's going to somehow work out. Sometimes it's the thrill of the miracle. It happened the way you prayed it. It came down and it was a miracle and it was just what you expected. But then sometimes it's the silence of desperation. The Jesus, can you make any sense of this situation? Because I don't know what I'm going to do next. It's the everyday communication, connection, and relationship where not one part of our life doesn't overlap 
with God. The Bible tells us that his mercies are new every morning. That every single morning we wake up, we're still in this marriage relationship with God. And every single morning we choose to spend another day with the one who takes our breath away. And every single day we choose to get to know him better. It's hand-holding through the good and the bad and the ugly and knowing that what come might what might come that day, we still have Jesus. And marriage gives us so much. It gives us a partner, it gives us a teammate, it gives us a cheerleader, it gives us someone to like bounce things off with. It gives us someone to sit and talk with or sometimes just sit in silence with. Marriage gives us so much. But marriage also costs us something. In a marriage, we choose one woman or one man for the rest of our lives. And we give up the right to pursue another person romantically for the entire time we live on this planet. You also give up the right to decorate exactly how you want to decorate. And you give up the right to control the remote control and watch a show that you like to watch. So there's this this paradox of like, it gives you so much and it costs you so much. And that's the truth of our earthly marriages, but it's also the truth about our heavenly connection with our Father. The difference between something that is real and something that is fake is usually the cost. Like, I can give my kids two quarters and take them down to Walmart, and they can put those quarters in that machine, and you turn it, and the little egg plasticky thing drops out, and they might get a ring in that machine. And that ring might have a rock on it, but it's going to be plastic, and it's going to be fake because it cost me 50 cents. But this ring that I wear costs my husband several thousand dollars. It's actually gold and diamonds, and so because it costs something, that's how we know it's authentic. And the same is true with our faith. If we are living a faith that has never cost us anything, chances are it's not very authentic. Now granted, there's no way you or I can earn or buy our way into heaven, no matter how much we're willing to pay. That's free. But the walking out of the marriage day in, day out, will also cost us everything we have. Our faith isn't likely to be real if it doesn't cost us something. And there's that price tag that's attached to genuine faith. And that price takes different forms in the life of every person. For some, that price might be pride. For others, that price might be friends that just don't understand our faith and so they won't continue to walk with you if you walk with God. That price might be your child doesn't make the starting position on the traveling team. Because you're not willing to sacrifice that much. That price might be money. It could be a job that goes against your beliefs. It could be time. It could be giving of yourself to others. It could be sleep. Because you got to stay up late or you got to wake up early to somehow have coffee with God every day. But at some point, at some level, faith will cost us something. And if it doesn't, it's not the real deal. Because faith is more... It's more than an experience. It's a marriage. And it may start off as a quick appearance in church one random Sunday. You just went because life threw you some curveballs and it was really hard. And you thought, you know what, I'm going to just try church again. 
And so one Sunday you show up and that was all it was. But from there forward, it should take root more. And it should grow deeper more. And draw more and more out of you as that faith becomes more and more significant in you. It becomes a relationship that stands as the most important and the one and only until death do you part. Jesus was willing to pay the price for us. Without hesitation, he paid the price for us. One of the shortest parables in all of the Bible, Matthew chapter 13, says this. The kingdom of heaven is like a merchant on the lookout for choice pearls. When he discovered a pearl of great value, he sold everything he owns and he bought it. Now in the time frame that Jesus told this parable, a pearl was one of the most treasured possessions on the planet. It was more valuable than diamonds are today and more valuable and more rare than gold. Silver was so plentiful in this era that it was actually kind of scrap metal. It wasn't even significant. And so a pearl was so impressive because they couldn't make it synthetically. It had to be authentically formed over a long period of time. You couldn't rush it. And so pearls were known to be really impressive, stunning and beautiful, and perfectly authentic. And so when Jesus chose a pearl as the subject of this parable, he knew his audience would think of that instantly as an incredibly valuable treasure. Now, sometimes when people read the short parable in Matthew 13, they think that they know the translation. And they think that the translation is that we, humankind, we're the merchants. And we're out looking for something worthwhile to give our lives to. And then we find God and we sell ourselves completely to give ourselves to God. And there are Bible verses that say important things that are true and significant, such as take up your cross daily and, and kind of lead a little bit towards that concept. But there's three quick reasons I know that that's not the tr true translation of Matthew 13. One is we cannot get into heaven on our own. If you take that interpretation of Matthew 13, you, you would be saying, we would be saying that we could get to heaven on our own somehow. That Heaven was somehow for sale and that we could somehow afford to buy it. All of which we know are completely untrue. And that's why I know the true translation of Matthew 13 is a little different. So I added some kind of capitalization and parentheses. And um, those are my parentheses. But I added those so we can read it again. And I want you to look at how I think this verse and many Bible scholars, not just JL, um, actually interpret this Bible verse. It says, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant. And I'm saying that that merchant is Jesus. On the lookout for choice pearls, plural. And that is us. When he discovered a pearl of great value, he sold everything he owned, gave up heaven, forsook the throne, laid down his divinity, was born of the Virgin Mary, suffered, died. He sold everything he owned and he bought it. And he bought us at a great price on the cross of Calvary. And so that's what I believe this real translation of this parable to be. And Jesus demonstrated his faithfulness to us. And because of that, we have a deep desire to be faithful back to him. His faithfulness is proven and tested. And now we choose to respond to his faithfulness by being faithful again. He starts it, 
and we reciprocate it. I remember clearly going to church as a teenager. I went to youth group every Wednesday, but I went to big church, even though my family didn't go. I went to big church every Sunday as well. And after a few months, I thought, wouldn't it be cool if all the teenagers sat together in one section? So I asked the youth pastor, and he agreed. And so we picked a section kind of off to the side, similar to over here, and we made some signs. And we labeled it youth section. It was very cool. And we taped our signs up, and we saved about 20, 30 seats in the first three rows of the youth section. Then we announced in youth group, everybody come, sit together. We'll get to know each other better. We'll have better, you know, church family camaraderie. It'll be super cool. And so the Sunday morning came that we were going to hang up our signs, and we hung up our signs. And as soon as we did, this old guy, no disrespect, this old guy, just, he and his wife just made a beeline right for our youth section and sat in chair one and two in the front row of the youth section. Now, this guy's pushing 80. And I think to myself, okay, I'm in church. So I'm going to be gracious and forgiving. Perhaps he's too elderly to know how to be able to see the sign from across the worship center. So I'm going to just be cool about it. And my friends and I will just sit around the old man. And so we get to our section, and as soon as we get there, he spins around and he sticks out his hand and he says, my name is Reuben, but you can call me Abraham, and this is my wife, Sarah, and we're the oldest people you'll ever meet. And I was like, what? And he's like, don't you kids know the Bible story, Abraham and Sarah in the Bible? They're like the oldest man and the oldest woman, and that's who we are. And as soon as we saw that you put up signs saying this was a youth section, we knew we had to sit here. And I said, okay. He goes, because I want you students to know that faith isn't just for teenagers, it's for a lifetime. And took our breath away. And there Abraham and Sarah sat, chair one and two in the youth section. They became the mascots of the youth section. <laughs> and guys, this was the perfect couple. They were so cool. They were so cool. He, he would always come in carrying his Bible and her Bible together. Her Bible, incidentally, had a um, floral print Bible cover that was hand-sewn a ruffle around the edge with a pink handle. And he'd carry that thing like the boss. And he'd go right to the chair and the universal sign of a chair saved at church Bible on chair. And they put the Bible, and he would have her on his arm everywhere they went. He'd always open the door for her. He'd wait patiently outside the ladies' restroom while Sarah used the restroom and open the car door for her every time. And we love Abraham and Sarah as teenagers coming up. And every week during greeting time, they'd just line us all up and we'd hug Abraham, we'd hug Sarah, then we'd go back to our seat. They would talk to us, they'd ask us if we had prayer requests, and we would pray with them on a regular basis. And after service every week, they would have a story prepared to tell us something important. And sometimes it was really funny, sometimes it was spiritual, sometimes I'm not sure what it was about, but... We loved them. And one particular Sunday, I remember Sarah, I honestly don't even know her name other than Sarah, <laughs> but Reuben and Sarah. And so Sarah told us that she was going to be having surgery that week. And she said, kids, will you pray for me? And so we gathered around Sarah and we laid our hands on her and we prayed our little hearts out that God would do a miracle in Sarah's life and the surgery would be successful, et cetera, et cetera. And then the next Sunday, Abraham and Sarah did not come to church. And we wondered, like, 
And it was a couple Sundays, and finally she came, and, and Abraham pushed her in a wheelchair right down to the front, and they pulled out the first chair in the row and parked her wheelchair there. And she told us that the surgery had not gone well, and that she was not recovering correctly. And all of us students were kind of stunned and shocked, and we prayed even harder. But over the next several weeks and months, we could tell it was a toll that was taking on Sarah, and a toll was being taken on Abraham. And I was a senior in high school by this point, and it was shocking to me when we got the news that, that Sarah had died. And the funeral was scheduled for a Saturday, and I remember all of us students debating on Wednesday night, like, should we go to the funeral? Should we not go to the funeral? We'd never really gone to funerals before. We were all kids, and we didn't have a clue. By the way, yes, the answer is yes. You go to the funeral. Always you go to the funeral. And so... The funeral came and went on a Saturday, and on a Sunday morning, Abraham didn't come to church on time. For the first time in four years, seat one and two were empty, and then halfway through the first worship song, he comes, his Bible in one hand and her Bible in the other, and he goes to the front row, and he puts the Bibles down, and he sits on the chair. And he doesn't stand up right away to worship like he always had my entire childhood, and so I was standing right behind his spot, and I was trying to think of something, like, profound to say I'm all of 17 years old, and I'm like, I need something inspirational, I need something motivational, I need something powerful right now to say to Abraham, but I didn't have anything. So I moved in a little closer, and I'm like, I'll get something when I get there to say, and then... I heard Abraham mumbling to himself, and I thought, okay, clearly the right move for me is this man has just lost his wife of 65 years, and he's like a spiritual grandfather to me. Clearly the right move is for me to sneak in even closer and eavesdrop, so that's what I did. And um, <laughs> it's a true story. <laughs> yeah, that was me, 17. Thank you. Okay, so I'm real close to the guy, and he's mumbling, and I realize he's, he's talking to Sarah. And he says to her, he says, you're still my girl. I'll always love you. And I can't believe you beat me to Jesus. <laughs> and at this point, the song has changed. And we're, you can't even make this stuff up, but we're singing Amazing Grace. And the third verse of the song comes on. And it says, when we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing your praise than when we first begun. And Abraham stands to his feet and he lifts up his hands and he begins to sing so loud and so passionately and so with so much belief in the core of his being. And I'm 17 and I'm looking at that guy and I say to myself, there is a man who didn't just show up at a wedding with Jesus but walked it out for 65 years who together with his wife handed a baton of faith to a 17-year-old kid who lived it day in, day out, who buried his wife 24 hours ago but can stand and sing about the grace and the faithfulness of his Jesus. And he's not saying it was easy. It was a hard day. But he could do it. And guys, that's what we're talking about when we say we're in it 
for the long haul. It's not just a Christmas and Easter thing. It's walking it out day in, day out. And success, friends, is not measured by how long we sing or how hard or loud we sing on a Sunday morning, if that's all there is. Because success is not that. I've been pastoring here at Fellowship for 20 years this May now. And I'll tell you that success isn't about how we start, it's about how we finish. It's not about when it's easy, it's about when it's hard. And it's not, success isn't today. Success is 20, 30, 50 years from now when we're all old and gray. And we're all singing and praising and reading our Bibles and hassling the youth section and having coffee with God and serving Jesus day in, day out. And success isn't about the numbers and it's not about the events. It's about the people. The people literally sitting next to us in church, at work, the coffee shop. It's about the people. And success is people. Success is men like Keith Kilgore who literally have served in our threes class for over 20 years. Every Sunday. He writes curriculum. He makes up silly voices. He hugs kids. He schedules teachers for 20 years. His first class of three-year-olds will graduate from college this year. And friends, that's success, right? Success is people like Heather Torres, who at one point in our church history had a husband deployed. She's functioning because of the deployment as a single mom of children while working full-time. And what does she do? She comes up every week and leads Celebrate Recovery Worship in a classroom where not that many people notice. But she's there and she's leading and she's growing her gift and she's using it in the kingdom of God. That's success. Success is students that have grown up here at Fellowship Church, kids like Miranda Wirtz, who starts coming to church as a second, third, fourth grader, comes up through the programs, comes to middle school every week, comes to high school every week, serves in so many places within this church, I can't even name them all, graduates and never stops serving. Never misses a week of 4640 because she's there, not as a kid, but as a servant with a heart to just replicate what's been passed on to her to get passed on to the next generation. And success is when we go home today and then we wake up in the morning on a Monday, it's not even a church day, and we open up our Bible and we read it and we have coffee with God and we talk to him and success is when we put in our earbuds and we worship our faces off whether anyone is noticing or not. It's just us and Jesus, but the worship is authentic. And success is bringing your family to church every week from Easter to Christmas and Christmas back to Easter. And you're dragging your kids to the kids' ministry and checking them in. And then the coworkers around you notice that you're changed because of this God thing. And they start asking you, so you start bringing them and their kids. And then you're in a worship service next to your coworker who's never been to church. But you're still loving Jesus and raising your hands because it wasn't a one-time thing. It wasn't a wedding it was a marriage and you're in it for the long haul with Jesus no matter what comes and success friends is when we're all old and gray and our skin is wrinkly and our hip doesn't move like it was supposed to and we all love Jesus 
and we spent the lifetime getting to know him. Jesus wants a marriage, not a wedding. And I want us to really think about that this week. Jesus wants a marriage with you, not just a wedding. The wedding is the moment where we prayed the prayer. We met the prayer in the moment. But then what? Then comes the marriage. If we would, let's stand to our feet together in this room. And I'd like us to contemplate that question. Have you at some point made the commitment and said, Jesus, I make you my Lord and Savior, the leader of my life. But then life got in the way and that commitment that you meant to walk out for a lifetime turned into a cheap, flippant wedding. But now God is calling to you deeper and saying, hey, I didn't just want a wedding, I want a marriage. With every eye closed and every head bowed, let's think about that question together as a church family. And if you recognize, wait a second, I'm living it like a wedding, but I need to make the jump today to a marriage. No one looking around, if you'd lift up your hand, it's a prayer of rededication. I'm taking it to the next level. I'm taking it to the level of a marriage now. So awesome. Let's pray together as we commit to a next level with Jesus. Dear Jesus, we love you so much and that you would search us out and find us and buy us back. We're so blown away. We commit to you wholeheartedly this morning. We're in the marriage. It's not just a flippant thing. Help us walk it out for a lifetime. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Walters family, we love you very much, and we'll see you next Sunday morning. Thanks for listening to this week's message at Fellowship Church. If you have not made Jesus Christ your Lord and Savior, I want to give you the opportunity to do that right now. The Bible says in the book of Romans, chapter 10, verse 9, If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You can do that right now. I want to encourage you to pray this prayer with me. Dear Jesus, I am a sinner and I need forgiveness. Please forgive me of my sins. I believe that you are Lord and confess that you are my Savior, that you died on the cross for my sins and you rose again. And God, I thank you for that. I ask you to be my Savior, to guide my life, and to give me a home forever in heaven with you. And God, I ask you this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. If you just prayed this prayer for the first time, or if you need additional prayer, we would love to hear from you. You can contact us at 970-245-PRAY or at prayer at fellowshipgj.com. Thanks again, and we hope to see you next week.